On today's edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamperin, we are going to be talking about what is going on in Ukraine and about how it's going to affect us with gas prices and everything else and how it's affecting Canadians who are Ukrainian or of Ukrainian descent. It, it is a, it, it's a horrible situation right now. It is a horrible situation. We'll be diving into all of that. We're going to be talking about potholes in Hamilton. Uh, no shortage of those. If you've been driving around, you know that for sure. Cyber security and cyber attacks in the Russia-Ukraine situation. We'll talk about that. How, how susceptible are either country, either side or us to a cyber attack in this one? And can your boss really be monitoring you at home? Is that allowed? And the provincial government is bringing forward a new law to make sure they tell you if you're being monitored, but that means some of you might be. Really? It's kind of scary, isn't it? Stick around. We'll talk about it all. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We have been following uh, over the last couple of days and even leading up to this, what has been happening in Ukraine. But uh, as I, I'm sure everybody by now, I hope everybody by now knows that Russia has gone in and the world is outraged by this. And thank goodness for that outrage. I want to bring in Mariana Alfaro, who's a breaking news reporter with the Washington Post. Mariana, thank you for doing this today. Appreciate your time. Hi, thanks for having me. So I wonder if you could tell us overnight uh, what we know. Has has anything significant changed since yesterday when Russia had pushed across the border and was shelling and bringing in ground troops? And I know there were battles around the Kiev mm-hmm. airport or Kiev, uh, Kiev. You know, that's one of the things about wars. You learn new yeah. proper pronunciations of cities that we didn't know before. But what yeah. is going on right now? Well, definitely things um, got uglier overnight. Um, again, I, it's that kind of thing where you're waking up just to catch up on everything and it's definitely escalated to a point where, you know, now now there's fears that it could, could fall soon. You know, the U.S. is saying we, we believe it could fall very soon. You know, Russian forces pressed closer um, last night, you know, ra- air raid sirens everywhere, people running for shelter underground in the subway stations, you know. It, it definitely was the toughest night, I would say. I, I mean, before going to sleep last night, the, the last thing I heard was President Zelensky saying, I'm, I'm still in, in Kiev. I'm still here with my family. I'm still here in government headquarters. I'm not leaving, but I am enemy number one for the Russians and my family's enemy number two. So it's no longer that they're only looking for him. It seems like they're definitely attacking civilian infrastructure. They're, they're not only going for government or, or military uh, members. They're definitely just going for plain, you know, civilian Ukrainians. Um, so I, I would say, you know, there is credible fear that the city could fall and that um you know there's nothing really stopping russia right now i mean look the 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 whole invasion as i say has outraged the world we've we've seen that response leader after leader after leader population even in russia has been out marching Uh, there would be those i think who would absolutely say already that russia has they might argue Russia has already committed war crimes um Mm -hmm. you know the the very definition of a war crime we can to debate that but if you were if they were to capture the president and something were to happen to him see i think mm-hmm. that puts a personal thing on it. that that even changes the narrative more because now it's not just going after the country it's it's personally attacking someone who i i really think that would be a, a this is already an egregious mistake i think mm-hmm. that would be an unbelievably bad step yeah yes and and at that point you know they are going after a democratically elected official it's, right it, it, it is beyond um, reason or, 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 I guess, it, it, any president whatsoever. Um, 
we haven't heard. I mean, you know, President Biden and, and um, more world leaders are attending an emergency summit today with NATO members um, to see, you know, what what could happen next. But at this point, the president last night remained committed to not sending U.S. troops to the ground in Ukraine. They're not. He's not trying to use a military action, but the options are running low. Uh, you know, sanctions clearly did not do what the president expected, what the U.S. government expected. Um, and so even if they're cutting off Russia financially from the rest of the world, which, again, terrible for Russia, it's not uh, doing anything to stop this. And I think at this point, Putin's not going to look back. No. And one of the very strange pieces of news that we heard yesterday, and I don't know if you can explain this or not, and I understand if you can't, but there was a report that the Chernobyl nuclear plant was captured. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking going, what's the advantage? It's a capped plant. It's not working. It's it's in a bunker. It's entombed. Mm -hmm. Is there some significance other than the name that we all know? Is there some significance to Chernobyl? I think, again, it, this is a lot of speculation, but um, part of it was that... Uh, some reports were saying, you know, he could, they could be taking it over and, and you know, use it as a plant and say, oh, like, you know, the Ukrainians were using this um, uh, because they were going to do nuclear stuff. And, you know, Ukraine is not allowed to use nuclear power at all. Um, you know, it was going to be used to continue this, like spreading fake information, uh, that which is what Russia has been running on a lot on, um, you know, at home in the network, you know, Russia propaganda machine. It's being used a lot that Ukraine has turned into this, like, unquote eel empire that they're the ones that are like actually in the wrong and i think that was kind of a, a visual kind of a representation they they kind of wanted to use this to continue pushing that narrative uh the secretary of state for the u.s anthony blinken yesterday said mm -hmm. and this is a little terrifying um mm -hmm. that putin clearly ukraine is not his last stop on this endeavor that he is looking to mm -hmm. expand beyond ukraine into other countries of the former soviet union Mm -hmm. uh, the, boy, I mean, you know what? It's 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 terrible enough that this is happening, and I don't know. The world doesn't really know exactly how to respond. I don't think whether militarily or whatever. But if he if mm -hmm. this is the first step, what happens then? You know that again. As you said, it is very scary because you know we're seeing it already that the U.S. has actually sent troops to NATO allies who are on the on the I guess line of fire at this point. Um, at that point, it definitely would just escalate so quickly. And, and I think we would be seeing the military action, like actually troops on the ground, you know, the violence starting um, from both ends. And that, and that would be the catalyst, I think, if they actually step into um, some of the countries that are, are um, next to Russia or next to Russia, next to Ukraine. Um, I think that would be what, what it takes for, for the U.S. And, and allies to start sending troops like I mean their troops are like tell the troops to go and sure to go in and, sure and, and to engage really and and and, and engage, I mean yeah. we got to go but on top of this mm -hmm. we have Putin making um sort of veiled threats that everyone is interpreting as saying he could be willing to pull out the nuclear option I don't know if that's what he means I don't think he's used the word nuclear but that certainly seems to be the intent of what he's throwing out there, that uh, it was like you, the world will see worse than they've ever seen or something along those lines. Is that is that how it's being interpreted that, you know what, you, you get involved in this, you could be some, see, seeing some nuclear bombs flying around? So that's, I think, where we're still holding, like we're still hoping that that is just too far for Putin. I think that is the line where we're like, there's no going back from nuclear, basically, obviously. And right. 
you know, that that is the line that I think everyone is hoping that will not be crossed or that we or that Putin will be gotten to before that happens, that there will be a reason to either, you know, make him stop diplomatically or the sanctions will finally kick in or there will be something that stops before it happens. Um, that is, yeah, that is, that is it scary. Is, it is uh, Mariana, that we're not, yeah. we unfortunately have to run Mariana, Mariana Alfano, uh, Alfaro, breaking news reporter with the Washington Post. Thank you so much for doing this this morning. Thank really so appreciate your time. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is so much going on in the world right now, and some of it is going to hit home soon, it seems. We are hearing reports now that gas prices are, well, the lineups were going yesterday, and we're hearing reports that we could be seeing $2 a liter. I don't know if that's a reasonable number, but those are some of the stories we're hearing that by the weekend, $2 a liter. Patrick DeHaan is the head of petroleum analysis with Gas Buddy. He joins us now. Patrick, thank you for the time today. Thanks for having me. Are those numbers feasible at all? Could we really see $2 a liter? Um, well, I, I would not expect that uh, for for much of Canada. Having said that, I think the the uh, the Vancouver market specifically uh, is going to likely hit that. It's just a matter of time. But Hamilton prices, uh, as we know, quite a bit under uh, where prices are uh, in Vancouver. So um, you know, while two dollars may pop up, it's going to be in the typical markets that are above everyone else. Uh, and I don't think Hamilton has to worry about that just yet. Why? Okay, now th- this may seem very um, well duh to a lot of people, but with what's going on in Ukraine and everything happening with Russia, why is this affecting us so much? Well, uh, simply because Russia is such a, such a large and, and critical piece uh, in terms of oil production. Uh, they produce about ten percent of global supply, and the risk is rising that something could happen as a result of their incursion and corresponding sanctions from from Western countries. So it, it, even though we don't get, we don't, Canada doesn't get much petroleum from Russia, would it? Or some parts of the country would? Uh, no, uh, but it is uh, unfortunately a global commodity. So what happens in one oil producing nation affects all oil consuming nations, whether that be uh, something in Russia or uh, something in the United States or something in Saudi Arabia. Uh, unfortunately, it destabilizes the entire uh, 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 globe in terms of the impact. So... All right. As this was all happening, Patrick, all I could keep thinking is we have in this country and in the States as well, but in this country for the last number of years, we have taken great lengths to not get pipelines built, to not push for expansion of our petroleum industry for environmental Mm -hmm. reasons. And I look at this now and I think if we had done that, would we not be in a fantastic position right now, not only to be able to give countries that may want to offer or to put up sanctions against Russia an alternative to get fuel, but also for our economy. We'd be singing right now, wouldn't we? Well, we certainly could be in a much different boat, uh, as you described, but there's been a lot of reluctance to uh, to do that across Canada. Um, you know, obviously the U.S. Uh, you know, has seen the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, which would help increase energy security from Canada. Uh, but Canada itself has not really invested much and under a uh, uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, we've we've almost seen uh, a hostility uh, hostility towards the sector that has put us in a predicament, a quandary in this type of instance. Uh, we no longer have the amount of energy security that we could have uh, had things been different. There's nothing we could do r- rapidly. We can't just ex- we can't make the pipelines flow with more oil or more gas than are there now, can we? They're they're operating at full capacity. The ones that exist. 
Well, no, they're not quite operating at full capacity. In fact, there's plenty of capacity to carry crude oil, um, you know, across much of the country, although many of those pipelines connect Canada to the United States. So, um, you know, the, the point right now is just oil production numbers are just not there. Uh, you know, we're not really at a point in, in many of the areas, uh, you know, where pipelines are, are full. So there's uh, capacity. Now, I will say that the Trans Mountain Pipeline, obviously, uh, there's a different situation there. Uh, we're talking about refined products at that point. But in terms of oil pipelines, there's enough capacity. Refined products pipeline, that's a different boat. And that certainly could be a, a point of, of contention again this year. Uh, should we see any problems in the U.S., that Trans Mountain Pipeline or lack thereof uh, certainly could be another uh, differentiator. Would you anticipate, and I don't think we've been down this road before. I mean, we had the the fuel crisis in the 70s and stuff, but it was a totally different environment as far as environment. Um, could you see this changing the public's appetite for oil and, and natural gas and that kind of production to say, look, yeah, we really care about the environment, but you know, we also care about not breaking our wallets with the cost of things. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, um, you know, it, it, as prices have exploded for energy and gasoline and heating your home, there, there certainly could be a change in attitude among Canadians. Um, you know, whether we're at that point yet, well, you know, we'll, we'll be able to tell the next election how Canadians are feeling about high energy prices. Uh, I know that certainly most uh, most Canadians, especially in rural areas, uh, it is a real struggle uh, to be able to heat your home, uh, let alone fill up your tank. So um, I, I would expect the the arguments to be rekindled, and certainly uh, politicians will line up on either side, and uh, you know elections will speak for themselves. Let me throw one other thing at you, and I alluded to it a moment ago, and that is many countries around the world right now, including Canada are putting up sanctions against Russia and saying, we, you know, we want to hurt you in some economic way. And yet there are countries, maybe many countries, that may be handcuffed in this because if you, if you go too hard at Russia, they may not provide you with the oil and the gas that you need. There's a, a probably a fear in some countries that if we go too hard, we could end up hurt by this. If we had more capacity... Would we not be able to sell to some of those countries and and make Russia more mm-hmm. fearful because they would now yeah. have more countries that could come after them? Yeah, essentially. Essentially, there would be more energy security. Russia wouldn't be as crucial. Um, and so they'd be in a much tighter spot knowing that, you know, they don't have as many cards in their deck. So absolutely, that highlights the key importance of energy security. Um, you know, Canada and the U.S. Uh, combined are very potent in terms of oil production and limiting that oil production limits the amount of security we have globally as a result. All right, we got to go. But uh, how long does something like this last? I mean, it, will it last as long as the conflict, or is the do are we going to watch the opening days of this to see how bad this gets? But things could settle back down in a day or two, or a week, or or how do we have any idea? Well, you know, it, it, we do. I, I think as long as there is a considerable amount of noise, markets will continue to be worried about the possibility of a loss in oil production. But if things do calm down or if they reverse, I think we'll see pretty quick improvement in terms of the uh, a corresponding fall in prices. But for now, I think Russia has, has been very clear um, and I don't sense any backing down from them at any time in the near future. Patrick DeHaan, the head of petroleum analysis for Gas Buddy, uh, very much appreciate the time. Thank you for doing this today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You probably have noticed if you've been driving your car around Hamilton or frankly almost anywhere else in a cold weather part of the world that um, uh, you may be having the odd bump or 
clank or bang or whatever under under tire because um there are there are potholes this is this is a time when we are noticing the potholes and um a lot of people saying it seems really really bad this year some are even saying it's now an olympic event to have to drive around and avoid the potholes well if it's going to be an olympic event we may as well bring on someone who is an athlete from his time one time college athlete of the year for ontario now the city's acting manager of roadway maintenance peter sneolis thanks so much for doing this really appreciate it Anytime. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's not an athletic accomplishment, but you kind of do have to be coordinated some of these days to avoid some of these potholes. It's rough out there. I agree. It, it, due to the recent temperature fluctuations with the free thaw cycles, uh, we've gotten the heavy snow and that'll cause our plows to go through and pop open existing potholes. Um, and then with the rain as well, that's uh, prime um, conditions for potholes to form. So you got the extreme cold, you get the free thaw cycle and the extreme temperature increases. Um, and that just causes a lot of them to form and previous ones to open up. Uh, Peter, I assume that a lot of people understand why these things happen, but take a moment. Why do potholes happen? Because it, they don't happen, obviously, in not as often in warm weather places. What's, what is it around here that makes it happen? Explain the, the, the situation. Sure. So there's, there's two basic ways potholes form and uh, reopen. So typically when water does get underneath the asphalt through cracks, it will sit there. Um, and when the temperature drops, it'll freeze and cause it to expand a bit. Then when the temperature does rise and that uh, water does vacate, it does leave a void. And then when traffic dries over that void, it causes the pavement to deflect. And a couple iterations of that will cause cracks and the pothole to form. Um, and then, of course, we go and uh, fill them as soon as we can. Um, but again, after they're filled, if we do get cold temperatures, we do get some snow accumulation. Our plows will go by and the odd time they'll pop them open again and we'll have to revisit those existing holes. And when you say, so when you say that this starts generally because water gets into cracks, is it a fair assumption then that you're much more likely to get potholes on older streets where cracks have formed as opposed to brand newly paved streets? It makes, makes sense. That's a hundred percent correct. Yes. Um, so typically uh, the cracks start to form, the water gets underneath and, uh, uh, deterioration does happen and we do the preventative maintenance with pothole patching. Now, I would also guess that there would be more likelihood that when you're describing what happened with the cars and trucks driving over it, that busy streets would be more likely. And yet at the same time, uh, drive down some back streets and there are some nasty potholes as well. So I, I, I'm assuming it has an impact how much traffic is going over there, but it's not exclusively busy streets. That's correct. So if you, you we do prioritize or have priorities and where we patch potholes and when we pot patch them. Um, so if you can imagine our class one roads, such as the link red Hill, upper James, um, those will have shorter timelines for us to repair them, but a residential street, um, since it has a, a lower, um, traffic volume, we do have a little bit more time to get in there and repair those. Um, we do also try to proactively get in and repair potholes. The last three days, we've probably had about 15, dedicated crews to pot filling potholes to try to alleviate some of the concerns before they're reported. And is it the same thing? Now, if you drive along some side streets, it's not even necessarily potholes. The other thing that creates these huge bumps, uh, and I don't know if it's the same thing that's going on, is around sewers, where there seems to be this rise of the asphalt and then a lowering of the sewer or whatever. Is that the same thing that's going on there? Uh, that'd be slightly different. That's uh, generally just due to... Uh, aggregate migration and eventually it will settle a little bit um 
and that'll cause those dips in the road that you do see. Okay. So every year, it seems we have a lot of people saying, man, there's a lot of potholes. And this year, I think the number right now is 14,000 that you've already patched. I don't know how many more are out there to be patched. Is this a particularly uniquely bad year or do we just forget what we said last year and forget what we said the year before when we said the same thing? I'd say typically this year, we, given that extreme snowfall, the temperature rise, it gets cold and temperature rises again. Uh, we have patched about 14,000 from January 1st to February 20th. Um, so I, I would say it's particularly uh, more potholes this year than we've seen in the past. And in the past years, it, it could range anywhere from about 35,000 potholes filled a year wow. to 60,000 potholes a year across the city. But can you can you possibly keep up with that? I mean, how many people, how many staff do you have going around plugging potholes? Right. So typically we'll have, uh, when snow is falling, we'll be on full snow mode just to ensure we clear the streets and make them safe for all residents. And when that does subside, uh, we shift over to pothole patching and we can be running anywhere from uh, 10 to 20 full dedicated pothole crews um, driving around the city. And, and is this a... Is this a stopgap thing? The stuff, the, the aggregate or the, the asphalt or whatever that you're putting in this, is the idea that this is going to fix this problem for a significant period of time? Or is it always the thought that we're just plugging it for now so cars don't get damaged, but this is really just a temporary measure? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's, there's a couple of different uh, methods we have to, re- to repair potholes. Um, when it's, the temperature is colder, we'll use a different type of mix. It'll be a cold mix, and we'll place that in the hole, and that is intended more as a temporary repair. Um, when temperatures do allow, we bring out uh, some equipment called a hot box, and that'll bring in some of our hot mix asphalt, and that will um, allow us to do a little bit more of a permanent repair, and often we'll, uh, we'll do a lot more of that in the spring when the temperature does allow. All right, Peter, we only have a few seconds left here, but there there are people, uh, I have done it, thankfully my car has not been damaged, but there are people who will either can't swerve because there's a car beside them or they don't see an, a pothole and it's a big one and they flatten a tire or whatever. Does the city have any kind of program? If your car is damaged in a pothole on a city street, does the city cover any of that damage? So it, it depends on um, the size of the hole, the time timeline of the hole and if uh, anybody does encounter any damage uh, they're encouraged to call 546 city as well as if they see a pothole um, to report a pothole um, and they'll be deferred to our risk department and they can take it from there it is uh it is an event these year these days as i say driving around and trying to avoid them because there are some that uh, that could swallow a small uh smart car <laughs> at times i know you're getting around to do all you can but it's uh it's it's not great this time of year ever anywhere and uh here we are again. Uh, Peter Sneolis, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I want to bring in Carmi Levy, who's a technology analyst and journalist. Carmi, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate your time this morning. Great to be here this morning, Scott. So I'm reading a story on NBC News uh, from yesterday. And here's the lead. Let me just read the first sentence to this. President Joe Biden has been presented with a menu of options for the U.S. to carry out massive cyber attacks designed to disrupt Russia's ability to sustain its military operations in Ukraine. Is this in 2022 in a war these days, is this a is this naturally where things are going to go that Yes, there's bombs and bullets and everything else that every war has had, but that cyber is also going to be a big part of this? 
you've described it perfectly in 2022. I think uh, every military conflict will have a physical front uh, involving conventional weapons that blow up and destroy things and people. And it will also have a digital front um, where not a shot is fired, but the damage can be, you know, fairly significant as well. And, you know, Russia is one of the, what we call the big four um, uh, state sponsors of, uh, so- of cyber attacks and along with uh, North Korea, uh, China and Iran. So, you know, there, I don't think anybody expected that, that digital, the digital domain would not be part of this. And, uh, and in fact, that, you know, Russia, in fact, has been using um, cyber attacks with increasing frequency and sophistication in recent months uh, against Ukrainian government targets. Uh, in fact, just last week, uh, distributed denial of service attacks against uh, Ukrainian government websites, we know they came from Russia. So, you know, for the American government to include uh, retaliatory cyber attacks, uh, cyber warfare, so to speak, uh, as part of the menu of options available to the government uh, to blunt the Russian invasion, I think this is just normal. It's a sign of our times. Um, And it also shows that the U.S. understands just how important digital warfare is in this age of, you know, technology-driven statecraft. Carmi, in the 70s and really in the 80s and even till today, we have an arms race. You always want to build, if you're a country, you want to build the biggest bomb, the most effective bomb, the one that can outmaneuver the defenses the other country has as a threat, I guess, that don't do anything to us or else you could be facing some problems. Is the, Does the same happen? I'm assuming the same is happening with the cyber world, because if one of these countries wants to launch these cyber attacks, it has to know that it can get past whatever defenses the other countries have up and running to, to stop right. that. That's exactly it. And in fact, it's probably one of the most uh, brutally cost-effective ways to bring your enemy to their knees. Costs a lot less money to hire a bunch of hackers and then turn them loose than it does to hire a bunch of engineers and develop bombs and missiles over a period of years. And so countries are recognizing that they can engage in what we call asymmetric warfare. You don't have to be a, a giant superpower class country in order to bring someone else to their knees. You can be kind of smart. It's almost like a David versus Goliath kind of thing. So that's why we're seeing calls from the Ukrainian government for individuals to get together online and take on Russian digital targets. Um, You don't have to be big and sophisticated and well-resourced and well-funded. You just have to have, you know, the will and you have to have the technical skills. And as we know, there are a lot of people in a lot of basements around the world who do and who are just itching to get into what we're looking as an emerging and growing digital fight. Carmi, there's, look, there's nothing funny about what's happening in Ukraine, but I got to say that I, I did smile slightly at the idea of a bunch of people in their basements <laughs> essentially being involved in this. It, it, again, nothing humorous about what's happening, but the fact that Bob in his basement might be able to, if he's skilled enough, do something to throw something out, there, there is something almost hilarious about that in a very unfunny situation. Well, there is. And I think there's something also comforting about that. In other words, here we are half a world away. So many of us feel powerless. It's almost like the 1930s are uh, replaying themselves yet again as as the Nazis positioned themselves for European domination in a very similar manner. So, you know, wouldn't you love to have those tools in your hands to maybe Hmm. do something about it or contribute to the cause? And in 2022, we have digital tools that allow us to. And I think, you know, on the one hand, it's a good 
good thing to, to have those options available to us um, because it does tend to, or hopefully, uh, temper the extreme behaviors of people like Vladimir Putin. But just as importantly, it serves as a reminder to everyone else that, you know, we can't just be launching, you know, digital bombs on our own elsewhere. We have to look at our own digital backyard and make sure that we are secure yeah. as well. And I've been saying yeah. this for years, we're not doing enough for that. So it's a good reminder. Well, because look, you said a few moments ago that Russia has been doing this for a while now. They've been, you know, with Ukraine and and other things, they've been involved in cyber espionage or cyber whatever you want to call it. Uh, presumably, and I hope I'm wrong because it would be great if I was wrong and this could be easier. But presumably, if you're doing that, you're also working very hard on your own defenses to make sure, knowing that this is the first place that the other people are going to be coming back at you with. So, you know, as much as We'd like to think that that person in his basement might be able to do something. You have to believe that the cyber defenses that Russia has up and running are almost impenetrable, no? Very much so. I mean, Russia as a country has long been at the forefront of, of the dark side of, of the cyber world. And they have they, they funded them a lot of the best practices for, uh, you know, virus and antivirus protection have come from Russian researchers, Russian uh, computer scientists. Uh, and a lot of these technologies emerged, uh, you know, from the good guys and then were co-opted by the bad guys. And a lot of it seems to have started there. Uh, for whatever reason, the culture of Russia seems to predispose itself to uh, cyber warfare. Not quite sure why, but it is what it is. And so I think, you know, this is a good, it's a good time for us to, you know, you know, sort of check ourselves, recognize that last year when, you know, we couldn't get gas along the eastern seaboard, when there were meat shortages, uh, that, you know, where Russia is going is they're increasingly going after infrastructure. They're increasingly going after the things that you and I take for granted that can make society very difficult to, to navigate. Uh, and so we have to raise our game as well, not just as individuals, but as 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 a, as a province, as a country. Uh, and when uh, electoral officials come Come to your door asking for your vote, and we know that's happening this year. You know, just over three months uh, here in Ontario. Those are questions we should be asking them. What is your stand on cybersecurity? Mm -hmm. Where do you think we should go in terms of of investing? Do you believe we should be investing more? And if they shrug and look at you with a blank stare in their face, like they don't know what you're talking about, you may want to think about voting for someone else. Carmi, we got to run, but you know, the one other thing, and we'll talk about this another day, the one thing that has really been on my mind the last couple of days about this is we've talked in a number for a number of years now about deep fakes and how, you know, deep fakes can be just mean or they can be funny, but a deep fake in a crisis situation where you have a an imitation of Putin or of Biden or someone saying something inflammatory, boy, you look now and you go, again, cyber stuff, this could be a tr terrifying thing if a deep fake was to lead to action by one of the other countries. Another day for another talk, but... Um, absolutely. A few things yeah. frighten me more. You're absolutely right. Uh, Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Is your boss spying on you? And you're working from home. Is your boss watching what you're doing, checking to make sure your key strokes are moving on your mouse every little while? Or that, could your camera be on? I mean, that's kind of frightening, but hey, what, what, if anything, are the people back at the home office doing to make sure you are actually working when you are at home during this whole time? I want to bring in Fiona Martin. She's an associate at Sanfiru Tumarkin. Uh, she's a lawyer there in, in legal issues to do with employment because we now hear the government, the provincial government is saying they're going to put in a law that would 
either prevent or at least let you know, I guess, uh, Fiona, what your boss or what your company is doing to keep eyes on you. Is that a, a fair description? Yeah, exactly. So the uh, the Ontario government is essentially planning on introducing legislation that would compel employers with more than 25 workers to disclose to employees a couple different things. One, whether they're being electronically monitored. Two, how the surveillance is being done. So the, the uh, legislation would require employers to specifically have a policy that spells out how can uh, company computers, cell phones, GPS systems, and whatever other electron- electronic devices are being tracked, along with why the information is being collected. So it'll essentially provide, a, like, as it is right now, there's not really much legislation that applies to worker privacy. Um, and that's become all the more relevant, especially with the with the rise in remote working. So this is sort of, aside from the Personal Health Information Protection Act, there's really not much else. So this is, this is certainly a step in the right direction in terms of creating guidelines for both employers and, and employees. Do we believe this is a big problem right now? Like, are the, is there reason to believe that a lot of companies are monitoring their employees at home? I think it's fair to assume that most employers, if not all employers, are monitoring their employees from home. I think it's just a case of to what extent. And that's why this legislation is important. It's, It's for employees to have, for there to be a level of transparency in terms of what is being monitored, how often am I being monitored, what is that information being collected for. I mean, like, I think a lot of us these days are sometimes taking Zoom calls in our bedroom, right? Which is something we didn't do two years ago. To what extent, or does that mean they like can they keep the kids? Are these Zoom calls being recorded? How long is the cam- camera being left on for? Those sorts of things. So it's, um, I mean, it's certainly, it's, it's, I guess, a step in the right direction. What is what is legal right now for a company? Like, is it, it, it apparently it is legal right now for your company to do some of these things, which I'm sort of surprised by, because I wouldn't know why your company would have rights more than your neighbor would have rights to tap in on this. But I guess if you're using company equipment, if you're on company time, that gives them the right to know what you're doing. Yeah, so that's an important distinction, right? Like, if you're using a personal, like if you're using a laptop, a work laptop. Um, and you're using it for personal means, a company has the right to to monitor what you're doing on that work laptop. The interesting part about this remote work environment is that a lot of us are using personal devices, right? There's a lot more, it's a lot more common for people to be using personal laptops, personal cell phones. And so it has become a bit of a gray area in terms of how much information is an employer allowed to track when you're using your personal laptop, but you're using it for for work purposes, right? Like if you're checking your personal email on your work laptop or on your personal laptop and then switching over, doing back to going back to work, how much can they really monitor? And so hopefully this legislation will help establish, help employers establish clear guidelines so that employers and, and employees can both operate within the confines of those guidelines. Is there anything, Fiona, that would specify 
let's say, okay, let's say work gives you a phone and you're supposed to use that mm-hmm. phone. We, most of us don't carry around two phones. So if work gives you a phone, mm-hmm. that's probably going to be the phone you use most often. Mm-hmm. Outside mm-hmm. of work hours, are they still permitted because it's a work phone at midnight? If someone calls you, are, are they permitted yeah. to tap in and see? Is that still, doesn't matter what time, 24 hours a day, it's a I, work phone, so it's a work phone. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, yes, right? Because it is a work phone, it's company property, it's been given to you for the purposes of conducting work. So I, I think it is fair game to say that if you make a personal call on that work phone at midnight, they're allowed to track that information. And But again, like, that sort of legally speaking, yes, I think there's a reasonable argument that the employer can make. But again, it'll come on a case by case basis. And maybe in a, as part of this policy uh, that employers are, are going to be forced to introduce, they'll specify, okay, no, you won't be tracked on like, we won't be collecting that information if you make a, a personal call on a work phone beyond work hours. Uh, I think there's a question. Theoretically, they, they can, that's fair game for an employer. I think there's going to be some employees who are uh, maybe a little nervous if if this law passes and if if companies now have to say what we are tracking and they say oh by the way we've been tracking this and this and this and this and this I, I think there may be some employees going wait a sec I've been tracked by that all along that's going to scare some people <laughs> it is it is and it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out I, I, the other thing is an employer like they're they're going to have to justify why that information is being collected right and so they. I know as of now, there hasn't been any legislation to date, but under the common law system, the court the court system, employers have always needed to show that electronic surveillance has a legitimate business purpose and that there's no less intrusive means of achieving that particular business purpose. So I'm sure that will play into the analysis as well once the legislation starts rolling out. Fiona Martin with Samfiru Tumark, and really appreciate this. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Orest Zadelsky is a senior policy advisor with the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. He joins us now. Orest, thank you for the time this morning. Really appreciate you joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Before we get into, because there's a lot of things I want to ask you about, but let's start there because that that is a that is a very difficult question right now, and I, I know the president of Ukraine has spoken out about this, even as his country is under fire. Should other countries be sending military and getting involved militarily in this, or is the response that has come from the rest of the world, in your opinion, been the proper one? So, look, Ukraine is not asking anyone to to fight for them. They're not asking for boots on the ground from other countries. But what they are asking for and what needs to be done immediately is a no-fly zone over Ukrainian territory. Uh, that's the first thing. I mean, Russia is targeting civilians with bombing, with rocket strikes, with air attacks. Uh, This is unseen in Europe uh, since World War II. I mean, Kyiv last night, Kyiv is the capital city. There's four or four and a half million people in Kyiv was under heavy rocket attack and air attack. Uh, These are uh, war crimes being committed by Russia. This is, you know, the start of what looks like a genocide that Putin Putin has planned. So, I, I mean, the, the most important thing is for the West to uh, work with Ukraine to secure Ukrainian airspace with a no-fly zone. And second, the sanctions that are uh, that need to be implemented against Russia need to be much more severe than the ones that are implemented now. So the the two most important things that can be done now is is 
shutting shutting Russia off from the SWIFT international payment system, which is the um, uh, system by which international transactions are made. Uh, sanctioning Russia's central bank, which holds its its reserves, and uh, <clears throat> uh, implementing a trade embargo with Russia. I mean, this is a regime that that is committing crimes, horrible crimes, as we speak, uh, in a country that is a peaceful country that um, attack nobody. And Russia is this is just naked aggression, unseen unseen in in Europe in seven decades. So the time for the West to act is is now is today. And, and, and Oris, the thing that I wonder about though is, and look, I think many, many, many people listening are going to agree wholeheartedly with you uh, about you know ratchet up the sanctions. Let's make this even stiffer. But if if I'm in Ukraine, if you're in Ukraine, if the, for the people who are in Ukraine, that's going to take some time to hurt Russia. And the urgency is right now. People are dying. People are being bombed right now. That, that I mean, it's it doesn't solve the immediate problem, does it? No, that's why there's the need is for a no-fly zone. I mean, Ukraine's Ukraine's ground forces are uh, f- holding their ground fairly well against this Russian attack. The big the big problem in Ukraine's defenses is is air, and so if uh, if Ukraine's allies can can help secure Ukrainian airspace, that will uh, go a long way to. Uh, forcing Russia to negotiations and to some sort of uh, solution here, um, but like that needs to be done now. So those, there's those are the two things that really need to happen, and like soon. We were talking yesterday on the show to a professor who specializes in this area of the world. He's lived in Ukraine or had lived in Ukraine for a number of years, and. He said something to me off the air, and I found it very hard to believe, but he said 30% of Canadians have some ancestry trace back to the Ukraine region. Is that true? Is it is the number really that high that that many people from around here would be tied to that area somehow? I, I mean, that, that sounds like a very high number to me. I mean, we know from the census that there's uh, 1.4 million Canadians identify uh, as Ukrainian, so I... I, I I mean, thirty percent is sounds very high, but um, but clearly, perhaps. there's a lot of people here who have an awful lot of attachment, stake, family, friends, people who are back there that are very concerned about what's happening right now. Absolutely, yeah. And so, I, I would ask people who can to uh, help us uh, help people there. We have a humanitarian uh, relief fund that was set up with the the UCC and the Canada Ukraine Foundation so you can go to our website ucc.ca and find out how you can donate some money to to help these people uh who you know I, I mean this is frankly something that uh nobody thought we would see again after World War II but here we are so what are the comments you're here? I mean, as far as I'm sort of surprised, quite honestly, that we're still getting Twitter and other social media out of there. I thought Russia might try to shut down all that kind of stuff, but we're still getting word out. What are people hearing about what is happening? Like, are a lot of people hearing from their family still that you know of? Yeah, people are in touch with, I mean, you know, phones are working, the internet, and it as far as we've seen so far is working. So people are hearing from their families there and trying to help them. 
Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just not, there, there isn't parts of the country where things are safe. Like even, even where there isn't Russian ground troops moving in, the Russians are, are using air attacks and rocket attacks against, uh, military installations, but, but also against civilian targets. And so, um, uh, people, people there are resisting and fighting and and doing so bravely and courageously. Um, but the fact is that they need help, um, mm-hmm. and and I think uh, it's it's time for for Western countries to to ratchet up the pressure on Russia and do it significantly. Oris Zakadalski, senior policy advisor with the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. Again, the website ucc.ca if you want to make a contribution to help out there. Oris, thank you for taking the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.